0: You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, today we are actually concluding uh, our uh, series in 2 Thessalonians that we have titled... Uh, living Jesus strong in in light of Jesus' return. And we've come to the last three verses of this little letter, which uh, constitute yet another prayer by Paul. I think it's the fourth one uh, in this letter, uh, fourth prayer of Paul for his uh, Christian friends in Thessalonica. And it is a prayer for us as well. It applies to us um, as well. Um, it's a safe prayer in the sense that what Paul is praying for is, is what Jesus has already given them and, and promised to give them in, in great fullness. Uh, that's a prayer that, of course, will always uh, be answered. Uh, so our text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 16, 17, and 18. If you don't have your Bible, it's printed for you in the In the worship folder, you can follow the reading there. This is God's word. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning would you forgive the preacher his sins and by your Holy Spirit may all of us hear and apply what you are speaking to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, these are the kind of verses I suppose you might be tempted to overlook. But really, you know, final words are often important. There are books written full of the, you know, the last words of of people that they've spoken before they've died. Uh, And here these final words of Paul's letter here, I I believe are important. This isn't just a polite closing. It is a polite closing, but it's much more than that. We are going to be concerned this morning primarily with verses 16 and 18. Uh, Verse 17 is is interesting as a historical matter. Uh, Paul uh, telling us that these last verses were written in his, by himself. They were written in his own hand by him. Uh, and that was to be a, a, a sort of like the, you know, the, the, the good housekeeping seal of approval. It, it's Paul's guarantee of authenticity. There may have been letters circulated in the early church that were supposedly written by Paul but were not. There was an implication of that earlier in this letter. The Thessalonians uh, seemed to have received uh, some kind of a communication, may have been a letter, uh, that was fake. It, it, supposedly it was from Paul, it was not, and it got them confused about the future return of Jesus. And so Paul, who, who ordinarily would dictate his letters to a secretary, uh, who would write them down, here stops the dictation and and writes these last words uh, with his own hand. Again, it seems to me emphasizing the importance uh, of this little closing passage. Now, uh, in verses sixteen and eighteen, we w- there's there's a reference to three important realities, divine realities that are yours and that you experience as a follower of Jesus. And those three realities are peace, presence, and grace. And we're going to unpack uh, each one of those. But, but before, before we unpack those, and, and I, I think it's important that we, we take a step back and, and perhaps reflect for a minute on what is today getting in the way of you experiencing those three divine realities, peace, presence, and grace. Some of you are familiar with Marilyn Robinson, now 77-year-old uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, uh, a deeply thinking, deeply profound Christian, Been reading, I've read some of her work, uh, the Gilead series of novels you might be familiar with, Uh, and and I've read some other of her essays and interviews. And she said in a in a New York Times magazine interview, interesting, she said this: "I hate to say it, but I think a default posture of human beings is fear." What it comes down to, and I think this has become prominent in our culture recently, is that fear is an excuse. Fear is so opportunistic that people can call on it under the slightest provocations. Fear has, in this moment, a respectability I've never seen in my life. That seems to me to be a profound insight. Respectable fear. We've somehow made fear respectable. There's no question that America is full of fear right now. And that fear is, for Christians, at least some Christians, getting in the way of us experiencing. The, the peace and the presence and the grace of God. And if you don't know, if you are overly listening to fear, overly responding to fear, it's worth asking yourself some help uh, some uh, heart searching diagnostic questions. I ask these questions of myself, I ask them of uh, of you. Are you fretting over your kids and grandkids? Obsessing about all the possible ways uh, their futures might be negatively compromised because you really aren't remembering and functionally leaning on the hands-on love and involvement of the living Jesus in whom you and your kids and your grandkids and indeed all things hold together. Are you circling the wagons, living in an almost constant crisis mode, socially, politically, because you're afraid and anxious about what's going to happen to you, your family, the church, our country, as if the death-conquering Jesus was somehow stumped by politicians and viruses and courts, Are you a person who's going to live forever at the right hand of God and know his pleasures forever? Are you driving yourself in fear that you're going to die someday without all your dreams and expectations fulfilled? So you've put yourself on an anxiety-powered treadmill for better vacations, better cars, better countertops, better houses, better spouses... even in the face of all of the desperate human need around us. As Marilyn Robinson helpfully reminded us in that interview, we as followers of Jesus should be different. We should stand apart from the culture because, she said, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. So if you are, as a Christian, habitually defaulting to fear, it's a sign that you've moved off of God. You've moved away from God. You've moved away from His truth. We wouldn't be the first, right? Uh, In Leviticus, the the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, God is warning His people, the people of Israel, that if they move off their loyalty to God to him, right, that one of the results is going to be fear. If they stick close to him, if they, if they remain faithful to him, if they lean on him in faith, fear will not be there. But if they don't, fear will come. God says this, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. I don't think we can talk about the peace and the presence of the grace of God without talking about the fear. The fear that is so present... But that is not a Christian habit of mind. What's going to take that fear away? What will form our minds in such a way or transform our minds in such a way that we are not fearful, fear-driven people? And it's these three things that Paul talks about here. The peace of God, the presence of God, and the grace of God so let's let 's uh, look at each of those fear imploding realities first, the peace of God. You know peace really is the antithesis of fear right if you're, if you 're at peace then you 're not in fear if you 're afraid if you 're if you're living in fear, then you 're not at peace yeah you know, 're not experiencing peace. Of course, there are no shortage of Cultural prescriptions for peace. This was an interesting week uh, in that regard. I did some. I did a lot of reading, actually. On on, uh, you know, what are the? If if you're not a Christian, not coming to church and hearing about these things, where do you? You know, what do you do for peace? How do how do you get it? If if. People are afraid in these times, and they are. Where do they go for peace? Well, there is no shortage of information, no shortage of prescriptions. Now, I'm going to read to you a, a strategy that I found on an online psychological journey journal, but it's, but it's representative. It, this is, it is, uh, they, they all pretty much sound similar cut out of the same cloth strategy for achieving inner peace this was a seven step strategy I saw anywhere from three to thirty steps in my reading thirty steps that makes me not peaceful just thinking about it number one be present in the moment in other words don't you know don't fret about future hypotheticals just worry about the present think be present in the moment number two limit your use of social media number three let go of the past number four don't be easily offended number five choose your battles carefully number six make time to journal and number seven, incorporate times of silence and solitude into your schedule. Don't laugh. Now look, there's common sense in all of these things. But if, look, if you really think, number one, you could do consistently do all seven of those things and if you could, that they would, they would inevitably produce peace in your life, then respectfully, I'm, I'm going to say you're naive. Verse 16 tells us that peace isn't something you internally generate. It comes, peace comes from the outside of you. Peace is actually a gift. It is given to you. Paul says here it's given to you by the Lord of peace himself. That's a very interesting phrase there. It's a it's rare it's a rare one for Paul. He almost always uses the phrase God of peace. In 1 Thessalonians he has verse 16 essentially appears in 1 Thessalonians almost word for word, but but he uses God of peace, probably thinking of the Father or the Trinity. But here he says, the Lord of peace himself. And most commentators believe that what Paul means there is Jesus. He's referring specifically to Jesus. Because of the close association between the word Lord and Jesus. Almost every time Lord is used by Paul, he means Jesus. So peace is something that Jesus gives you. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, his fearful disciples. He had just told them about what was going to happen to him. And they are afraid. And what does he say? John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world gives peace either through self-help strategies like we just talked about or through a positive change in your circumstances. In either case, whatever peace results from those things doesn't last. It can and will evaporate in a moment. If peace is dependent upon your circumstances, if peace is dependent upon how well you can affect a self-help strategy, you know, good luck with that. How's that working for you? But the peace Jesus gives you, believer, is not a come and go thing. Jesus says He gives you peace at all times, in every way, at all times. Some of your translations may say "continually." That's 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 good too. It means that the peace you have isn't depending upon your circumstances at all times. Covers all circumstances. If peace was it meant having the same, you know, it meant the same thing as having peace and quiet, none of us would have peace. But the peace Jesus gives you, and and Paul is, you, you know, the New Testament of course is in Greek, but the background is Hebrew. The peace he's talking about, uh, as a converted Jewish man, is shalom, right? That that, uh, the, and shalom is a, is means much more than peace. It's a it's one of those words like chesed that that's hard to translate. It means it means Peace, peaceful, but it means being integrated, being whole, being together. Um, having it together means secure, contented, settled, unafraid. Shalom thrives in good times, but shalom also thrives in crazy, tragic, sad, unwanted, out of control times. So, the peace Jesus gives comes, is, is, is a continual peace. It's there at all times in every way, or in, yeah, right, in every way, which means that it's a multifaceted peace. Fundamentally, the peace that Jesus is talking about is the peace of justification, right? Romans 5 1. Therefore, since you have been justified, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the knowledge of an objective reality that there is, because of Jesus, nothing standing between you and God. That because of Jesus, you are in, right now, a fully restored, fully reconciled, fully accepted relationship with the one person in the universe who ultimately matters your heavenly father and but that objective peace that peace of justification is a peace that like kevin just prayed is a peace that is experienced it's not just an objective reality that you you are in this this close Never to be broken, accepted relationship with God. Uh, But it's that that translates into experience, that you feel it, even though many times you don't comprehend it. Philippians 4 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see there, there ought to be about us something that is incomprehensible. The world ought to look at us and, and wonder, how can they be so serene, so settled, so unafraid? It makes no sense. That's right, because it passes human understanding. You have a peace that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That word guard there is a a word that has military overtones. The image that Paul is evoking there is of of a guard or a sentry, which is posted around and surrounding your heart and mind and as fear approaches, as something that would bring fear or that would disrupt your shalom approaches you, the sentries bar the door. They turn it away. They don't let it in. Give you a a human... Uh, experience that illustrates that spiritual reality. Years ago, I was um, fly fishing by myself, uh, w- way deep in 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 the, in the wilderness. I was there standing in the middle of a river, totally uh, focused on on my fishing. I was fish- I was uh, casting towards one fish. I was just totally concentrating on it, and then. Uh, it, I saw some movement, and I looked up, and I'm being um, I'm being approached by a group of I, at least six gangbangers. And the scary thing is, they were approaching me from every angle. You know, twelve o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, three o'clock. They were all coming in on me like this. Um, I had one weapon, a, a whippy little fly rod. I, I had no time uh you, you know f- I, I could tell they they were up to no good. i didn 't know what was going to happen, instantly fearful I, I had a moment just a moment you know your mind is racing. you know, what do you do? I threw up a prayer and and at that moment, a uh um, Department of Water and power uh employee drives by on the road that's way up in the above the river. Uh, he's driving by on this dirt road and he, he apparently saw what happened and he stopped, got out of his truck and yelled, Hey, and that's all it took, man. Those guys took off like cockroaches, (sighs) just disappeared. Um, and I was left, you know, sort of hyperventilating in the river, um, that's, a, that's a, a wonderful story of God's providence, but it's, it's a human picture of, of the century that God puts around your heart, right? That as, as fears approach, and we've all experienced especially at night, right? Fears multiply. They come at you from all directions. But you have a peace, right? You, don't, you, 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 you do not have to be anxious about anything fearful for anything because the peace of God guards your heart and mind. It, it's, hey, turn around, get out of here. And you know what the peace of Jesus also does? It does one other thing. It, 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 it silences that inner voice. And that inner voice may be your own. Some of you have Really demeaning self talk. Right. Or it might be the, the inner voice you hear, might be the voice of the accuser. It might come from, uh, you know, it might smell like smoke. And so when you hear that voice it's just, you know, that in your head that's saying, you know, who are you that thinks you can be a Christian? Who are you that thinks God will love you with the mess you've made in your life, with the mess that you are, the horrible person that you are? How can you believe that you are loved and forgiven? You're stupid. You're wrong. The peace of Jesus allows you to say, you know what? Self, you know what, Satan, you're right. I am a mess. I'm messed up. I'm, I have sinned in ways that I, I would never confess to anyone, but to, but but to, but to the Lord. But self, but Satan, I am a sinner, forgiven and redeemed by the blood of my Savior Jesus. And so get out of here and shut up. Your accusations have no sway over me. That's the peace of Jesus. Second, the presence of God. Um, that's the last sentence of verse 16 there The Lord be with you all. Uh, ever thought about presence? Right? There is something almost magical about the power of presence, isn't there? It, presence by itself can, can absolutely shred fear and bring in peace. And I, you, I know you've all experienced this in one way or another. I can remember as a young boy being in the Boy Scouts and, and being afraid of some of the older boys in my troop, uh, often with good reason. Uh, but if my dad happened to be one of the adult leaders on one of our uh, camping trips I was bulletproof right I wasn't afraid of anything now is that, is that because dad beat them up no my dad didn't do, do any of that the, my dad was just with me he was just there and it was just his presence that took my fear away And that, it's not just something you experience in, in childhood. I experience it even now. Um, if I am, say, up in the eastern Sierra and I'm hiking by myself, again, I, and I, I haven't learned my lesson, I probably should have, but if I'm by myself hiking in, a, in a, some remote area where, where you might expect to see a bear or a mountain lion, I will be afraid. I will feel some fear as I'm doing that. But if Linda is with me, I'm not afraid. I mean that—that right, that just shows you the power of presence, right? I'm not uh, relying on Linda to protect me. I'm relying on the ability to outrun Linda when the bear shows up. <laughs> uh, no, it's—you know—it's just having her with me takes away my fear. So what if the one who is with you is the Lord Almighty? Right? The one who has all the power and the knowledge and the authority and the wisdom to deal with anything that c- confronts you in your life. I mean, that reality, that, and it's, a, it's an objective reality, the Lord is with you, that sh- vaporizes fear and brings in peace. Old Testament, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And then Jesus in the New Testament, the resurrected Jesus, uh, giving the great commission to his disciples, no doubt now afraid. They've just been given a worldwide commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus, no doubt sensing their fear, their lack of peace because of that fear, and says, what? Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. What powers us? What takes away our fear. What allowed the Gordon family to go to Panama. The Lord goes with them. Thankful for the helpful insight of pastor and theologian uh, Derek Thomas, uh, who who here on this point makes makes the makes a, a the good point. That we're not talking here, and Jesus wasn't talking there in Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not talking about the doctrine of God's omnipresence, right? The the truth that, that God is, in, by nature, omnipresent. That he is, uh, you know, everywhere present. No, this is something much more... Personal, much more powerful. Jesus is talking about the covenantal, personal, protecting presence of God. This is Jesus coming alongside you. The person he lived for and died for and now empowering you to live and work for him. The one who is with you, even now still bears the scars on his body that he got by saving you. That's the presence we're talking about. Which is a natural segue to the last point, which is the grace of God. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I'm, I'm thankful here to a, Sinclair Ferguson, among others. who, who Ferguson makes this point often. Because I find myself falling into the same trap, and that is thinking of grace as as some kind of commodity. You know that it's like a substance out there. It's a it's a, it's a commodity or a force or something that that God dispenses. But we, we we can't think of grace, nor should we think of grace as something apart from Jesus. Okay? Grace is embodied in Jesus. You want to know what grace is, look at Jesus. You can't separate grace and Jesus. Grace is the person of Jesus. Grace is the work of Jesus. His disciple, John, understood that, got it. In in his famous prologue to his account, the the book of John, his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he he said it this way famously, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. From, from him, it's, it's full of, he's full of it. He's full of grace. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the significance of grace here is that it means you have received the peace of of the Lord and the presence of the Lord as a gift. And because it's a gift from God, you will never lose it. It's not something you have to earn. It's not a self-help strategy. It's Jesus and what he did for you. I'm going to read a description. It's, in a, it's by a British Christian writer. And, and he's imagining the embodied grace of Jesus as he's on the cross. And he says it this way. And I, I, I read this to you because I want to get... You know, we got to get beyond the concept of grace... To, to get which is which is wonderful and get to its emotional power to get to the fact that this is this is a real thing and you really have it and it's what gives you peace and God's presence here's what he writes it's talking about Jesus now he cannot do anything deliberate now the strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms, hurts too much. The pain fills him up. As much for him as it has for everyone else who's ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances. Or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking it in. It is not what he does, it is what he is. He is all open door, open to sorrow, suffering, shame, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it, he turns to meet it and claims it as his own. This is mine now, he is saying. And he embraces it with all that is left in him. Each dark act. Each dripping memory. But there's so much of it. So many injured children. So many locked rooms. So much lonely anger. So many bombs in public places. So much vicious zeal. So many bored teenagers at roadblocks. So many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world, he claims, claims him. It burns and stings. It splinters and gouges. It locks him down and drags him down. Friends, the one who did all of this for you will never let you go. And the world that he allowed to drag him down so that it would never ultimately drag you down could not in the end hold him down. As we will celebrate at Easter in just a few weeks, three days after that time on the cross, when, it, when the cross d- dragged him down to death itself, for your justification, Jesus was raised from the dead and now rules over the world that rejected him. Friends, this is your confidence. This is your peace. This is the one who is with you even now. And his name is Jesus. And he's got you. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Let's please now take just a couple of minutes in silence. To reflect on the peace, the presence and the grace of Jesus in your life. And talk to him. Talk to him in prayer. And uh, I will close us here in just a couple of minutes. Let's pray in silence together. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, in whom we have peace, in whom we have your presence, and in whom and through whom we have your grace. Help us, Father, as your children, to be fearless in a fearful culture, May that be a witness to the beauty and the grace and the salvation of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.